Glad to have you all with us today. And uh, we launched our section breakfast, so I assume that people over here are well fed and feeling like you're among friends. So uh, we're glad of that. And oh, I'm sorry, no, it was this team over here, this group. Yeah, you're the ones that are, you're like, we didn't get any breakfast, so yours is next week. And then the third week of August is these sections here. The reason for our section breakfast is really amplified uh, this weekend because we realize how important it is to not simply be a room full of casual acquaintances, but to really up the relational connection as the body of Christ. And so we have a tendency to come and experience the service and smile at people and leave, but no real life-to-life connection. And so our goal is that you'll get to know people, that you sit around every week, uh, strike a friendship with them, see that grow, that we'll do that as a, as, a, as a church body and as people come here, that we are more welcoming and engaging with them. And uh, that's especially essential. Friday, Thursday and Friday this past week, we had the Leadership Summit. We host that simulcast every year for probably 15, 20 years. Comes out of Chicago. And on Friday, I was sitting right out here at a table in the, in the aisleway next to a pastor friend of mine, and the, the speaker was just really bringing vision and inspiration, talking about a soundtrack for your life and a new soundtrack for your life. I thought, you know what, God, you know, these next couple of years, you know, pushing retirement out, I want a new soundtrack, and I'm kind of getting stoked about it. And my friend showed me a news app, and he said there was some kind of shooting near here. I looked, I go, wow, that's right around the corner off of Brantford. Moments later, um, Detective Lawson from the Vendaya Police Department who attends here texted me and said, there's been a quadruple homicide. Would you please come? I'm part of a crisis intervention team. So I wrapped things up here and I hustled on my way to Vendaya Police Department. He said, we're going to meet here. And on my way there, I was talking to Dirk. And Dirk said... He said that two people killed were Sarah and Kayla Anderson, who are part of our church. And I cried all the way to the police station, telling myself, pull yourself together, you're supposed to be helping. And uh, not only were Sarah and Kayla killed, but then the neighbor went, the the gunman went across the street and killed an elderly couple. And our hearts go out to the Anderson family, Brett and Olivia. Brett, to your parents and to Sarah's parents, the Brockmans, and to the family of the Knox family our heartfelt condolences and sympathies. I believe Brett's going to the funeral home tomorrow to make arrangements, uh, but there will likely be a viewing here Thursday and a service here on Friday. This has also rocked Vandalia Butler since Kayla was just made JV soccer and there were about 100 athletes gathered together Friday and a bunch of students Saturday. There's a community event at the, the Student Activity Center at Vendaya High School at 5 o'clock tomorrow. And uh, in a church our size, I'm not surprised that many of you don't know the Andersons. And so Brett gave us permission to put a photograph up. And I'm not on the left are the high school sweethearts who turn into a beautiful family with Olivia and Kayla, and there's Kayla on the right. And I have told people who have inquired and expressed concern that a, a sweeter family you're not going to find. And we hear a lot about shootings and violence and how it can't be controlled and you never know where the risks are. And I had someone say, I'm just stunned. How did this happen in Butler Township? And the reality is the horrors of this life 
and our culture and our planet are here and have hit us. And one of the benefits of being at a church for almost 40 years, I remember seeing Brett running around here as a kid, hair parted down the middle. Fell in love with his high school sweetheart and they get married and you dedicate their babies and they grow up and, and they serve in the church and their kids are growing up in the church and I'm old enough to be his dad, their grandpa. And then to have senseless loss. So we were at a neighbor's yard for most of Friday and into the evening and Dirk and I were trying to figure out what do we do for the service at that point tomorrow. And so do we just have a prayer time? Not, not, not a, doesn't feel right. So we kind of rebuilt the whole service overnight. And normally I've got days, weeks, months to prep a message rather than hours Mine went back to a sermon series that I did and a book that I wrote with it. It's hard to believe it's almost five years ago, but the, the book might be helpful to some of you. You can still get it on Amazon, but God, where are you? The subtitle says, Why Do Bad Things Happen and Why Do Prayers Go Unanswered? In 43 years of ministry and 65 years of life, I've had bad things happen in my life and in the lives of those I love. And in 43 years of ministry, I've seen lots of bad things happen in the lives of people that I know and love and have served. I have a lot of prayers that have not been answered the way that I wanted them to be answered. And I've seen a lot of people with desperate prayers, legit prayers, prayers that you would think would be answered that weren't answered. And so the question is, how do we process that? What sense does that make? And I wrote in there that pain is hard to endure. Pain can be even harder to understand, and it's often impossible to explain or accept. Sooner or later, most of us will encounter pain that seems unbearable, disappointment that shatters our dreams, or evil that leaves a dreadful scar on our soul. And I have wrestled the introvert part of me would just assume go inward with this pain and withdraw and go be someplace. But as a shepherd, I'm like, God, how do I help our flock deal with this? And not only this time, but deal with this for other times. In order to handle what philosophers call the problem of pain, that basically God is all good and God is all powerful and yet pain and all the horrors exist, therefore either God is not all powerful or all good, that's the problem. In order to comprehend that, in order to figure out our way forward in that, we've got to zoom out past the pain in our personal lives. We have to zoom the lens out past the pain we experience in the community, and greater Dayton has been rocked by this as well. You have to go past even the, the look at national and global pain like tsunamis and genocides, and we have to look at a universe creation-wide perspective to begin to comprehend how to process what happened Friday afternoon right around the corner. And so we talk about, and I've done this, seems like not long ago, the sermons tend to run together when you preach as many, but there is a cosmic battle, if you will, between good and evil. And there are 
spiritual beings associated with this continuum. Obviously, God is all good. And from God emanates his holiness and his righteousness and the force of eternal life. As good and loving and morally perfect as God is, there is one that is as alternatively hideous and evil, and that the Bible calls Satan. And the force emanating from him is sin. The Bible doesn't give us a lot when it comes to origins of the universe. The book opens up with a presupposition, in the beginning God. There you go, take the leap. In the beginning God created. But we, we can surmise things from obscure and different passages of Scripture throughout the 66 books of the Bible. And we can see that this battle began actually before Adam and Eve were even created. In fact, the Bible would indicate to us that Satan was at one time the chief angelic being named Lucifer. And his pride got the best of him, and he tried to assert himself above God. And Lucifer and a third of the angelic host were cast down from heaven, and that has become Satan and his demonic host. And hell was created for them. So before Adam and Eve were ever even placed in the garden, let me read for you that account in Genesis chapter 2. It says, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Make whatever you will of the tree. God established a principle in the Garden of Eden. He put Adam and Eve in that garden, which was paradise. In that garden, there was, there was perfect harmony between God and man, between, within man in himself, Adam and Eve, knew nothing of insecurity, envy, anger, disappointment. Perfect harmony with each other and perfect harmony with their environment. It was paradise. And God established the principle, my will, your will. However you interpret that, it was don't touch that one tree. Loads of freedom, one guideline. Don't touch that. We're good. Satan, seeing an opportunity, you can read the story. Did God really say don't eat that one tree from that one tree? You won't die. And Adam and Eve disclosed to us the, the nature, the essence of sin, and that is knowing God's instruction and doing instead what I choose. It's at the heart of sin. Whether it's saying what I want to say instead of knowing how God tells me to guard and guide my tongue, acting how I want to act, doing what I want to do, going where I want to go, knowing it's contrary to God's instruction, God's guideline, God's will. When I take my will into my hands in opposition to God's will, that is the essence of sin. And when Eve ate of the fruit... And Adam ate of the fruit. The Bible tells us, theologians call that the fall of man. Because in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Understand in that paradise of Eden, while the universe battle between good and evil had already been set into motion, in Eden on earth, God did not intend for death to be part of human experience. Suffering, disease, birth defects, crime, injustice, you name it, none of that was his intention or his creation for humanity. 
But the Bible says that through one man, through their sin, sin and death and suffering and all that spread to all of humanity. They opened the floodgates of everything immoral, everything wrong, everything evil, and it has tarnished all the way to the gene pool of humanity ever since. And we, we are consequence. Romans 3, chapter 3 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I've sinned, you've sinned, the people around you, all of us. And we fall as far short of the glory of God as heaven is, heaven is from hell. And the problem is that Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now let me add to the drawing. Apologize for the red iceberg, but we only have so many colors. I do have blue for the water for you realists. Your pain, your agony, your sin, the sin they committed against you, your shame, all of that, all of the direct and indirect byproducts of evil and sin in your life and mine are the tip of the iceberg of the battle of good and evil raging in a universe. The wages of sin is death. I deserve what Satan deserves. I made the same arrogant, sinful choices Adam and Eve and Satan made. I'll take my will, not God's. And so when the floodgates have been opened and creation has been devastated with the consequences, you can see why it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to personalize the experiences of pain, suffering, and evil in our life and ask the question, why me? Why you? Why you what? Why does pain hit my life? Why have I suffered evil? Why has it been unjust to me? Whoa, 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 whoa. You're forgetting this isn't primarily about you. This is a universe-wide battle that is raging since for, for eons of time between God and Satan. Good and evil, the stakes are high, and, and you and I happen to be caught in the crosshairs of existence. You and I deserve the same fate of Satan unless there's an intervention. And so let me take this green marker and draw what represents the world. So we are on this fallen planet, devastated by sin, each of us experiencing the consequences of the wages of sin. If I were God, probably if most of us were God, I would say the battle was going on, but I created the world and put you in the Garden of Eden, and it was paradise. All you had to do was, the one, was not do the one thing I told you. And your sin, your arrogance, you're asserting yourself as over what God would do or say, just like Satan, Lucifer did, God could easily say, you open the humanity, you open the floodgates of sin, you open the floodgates of death and suffering and injustice and pain, I'm done with you. You ruined my paradise and my intentions. But here's what's incredible. In the context of that and the experience of that and the agony of that, John 3, verse 16 says, but God so loved the world. God so loved 
you and me and every person here and all eight billion, whatever it is on this planet, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He looks at this world and says, I still love you in your sin, in your fallenness, in your despair. And there is, because the wages of sin is death, we don't understand that spiritual law. We will when we get to heaven. Someone has to pay the, the penalty for sin. I'm going to give my son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross to save this world from our sins and the consequences thereof. That's the kind of God that we serve. What we know because of what Christ did is that the Bible says when believers are absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. And as tragically as they were made absent, Sarah and Kayla are with the Lord. And... I want to segue over to the, the person of the story of God, where are you? His name is Job. He was living the life that I think all of us would envy. First of all, the Bible said he was the most righteous man on the planet, and that certainly wouldn't be said of me or I would assume most of us here. And he was wealthy. He had everything you could desire and a full family and and this man who was the most righteous man on the planet, the Bible says in a matter of days, he lost all of his children and their families to natural disaster. All of his wealth was wiped away, and as if to add insult to injury, he was stricken with a horrendous physical disease that caused huge sores and pus all over his body. And his wife, who likewise saw her fortunes and her identity change, she went from mom, mother-in-law, and grandma to, to simply married to this man who is a shell of who he was. And she says to Job, do you still hold fast your integrity? Why don't you curse God and die? And Job said to her, you speak like one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we accept good from God and not adversity? And what's incredible is that rather than shaking his fist at God, which his wife justifiably, understandably told him to do, the Bible says, in all these things, Job did not sin with his lips. And when I read that, I go, wow, no wonder God said he was the most righteous man on the planet. And then Job had friends. For the first few days, they did what was right. They came and they sat, and they were just quiet in the pain. And then they decided it's time to speak up. And Job's friends basically argued that both the good and the bad in life are dispensed according to what we deserve based on what we've done and the condition of our hearts. In other words, well, Job, bad things happen to bad people, and good things happen to good people. You do the math. And I have found that really bad theology does not make really bad experiences any more manageable. And I would add to that really bad theology another really bad form of theology that is very popular nowadays. And if this is yours, I beg your pardon to at least give me time to hear me out. And also, I'll be the first to acknowledge that I am not theologically infallible. You do not have to agree with this. But I find a, a bad theology that doesn't make experiences more manageable is when people say everything happens for a reason. In 43 years of ministry, I've come to beg to differ with that because the implication that everything happens for a reason, what's unsaid is, where you see the creator of the universe, the one who spoke the galaxies into existence, that guy, he had something he wanted to do on planet Earth with people and he couldn't figure out how to do it except for using your tragedy to make it happen. If that's what you mean by everything happens for a reason, I can't harmonize that with the rest of this book. But as I went into detail in God, where are you? If, you? if you want to say that everything happens for a reason because it's one of four reasons, I'm good with that. 
And the reason why we delve into this together today, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says in verse 26, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And it's not just one, but Brett and Olivia, our hearts break with yours and your families. And Brett and Olivia did life in church, not just with strangers, but did life together. And so there is a wake of pain and heartache. And, and I would suggest to you that everything happens for a reason if we say, well, there's one of four potential reasons. And one, I believe in the providence of God. And so very much God causes lots of things directly to happen. Both understandably good and some things I don't understand why he does it, but he does them. God, God causes things. The other end of the continuum, if we're making one, Satan obviously has the power to and has caused things throughout time. So sometimes satanic activity, direct involvement, is the reason. Another cause in this universe is me and you. It's called free will. For some reason, when God created us and put us in the garden, he put such a premium on human free will that he rarely overrides it and you have regrettable decisions, shameful decisions, even foolish decisions that are evidence of the fact that God in heaven didn't say, he's going to regret that, I'm going to override it. And so God can cause things, Satan can cause things, I can cause things, or people can cause things to happen to me. So humans are a cause, a reason things happen. And the other reason things happen is just a fallen planet that we live on. The disciples tried to figure that out. They were living under the good things happen to good, bad things happen to bad. When they walked by a blind man, they said, Lord, who sinned that this man was born blind? Because somebody had to do something bad for a bad thing to happen. Did his parents sin? Jesus said, nope, that's, that's not what's going on here at all. And so we live on a fallen planet, and the planet likewise has certain laws. And so when I take this marker, I'm, my hand is going to go like that on the marker. You know what's going to happen, don't you? No one is shocked. No one leaps up going, what was that? Because it was just gravity. And when I'm dropping this on the floor or on my notebook, it's no big deal. When, if I would drop this, there'd be, oh, I got water all over and I broke the glass. If it's a weekend climber on a cliff a little too steep or a construction worker stories up and they miss their step, it can be tragic. And there is no who caused that, who did that. It was just a consequence of being on the planet or a consequence of being on the fallen planet. And, and we have disease and birth defects to deal with. And most of the time, there is no who is to blame for that. It is just the fact that even the gene pool on this planet has been impacted by the fall. So if I say to you, everything happens for a reason, I'm saying either God caused it, either Satan caused it, Either some humans caused it or it's just a consequence of living on this planet. And that last one, for me, accounts for a lot. With that said, let me shake some theology a little more, but I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty rested in it. As broken as this world is, as sin-devastated as this world is, God can't fix it. Oh, but God's omnipotent. Yes, he's all-powerful. All things are possible with God. But Jesus told a story. It was a story about a landowner who had a field. And that field, he planted wheat, beautiful crop coming up. And then an enemy came and sowed weeds in the wheat. And the, so the landowner's servants came and they said, Master, so an enemy has come. And they tried to destroy your crops. And they've sown weeds in the wheat. You want us to go rip out all the weeds? What's the analogy there? God created, placed Adam and Eve in the garden. It was paradise. 
Satan successfully sowed sin into humanity, onto this planet, and it is spreading like weeds across the planet. And the question is, God, why don't you just rip out all the evil that currently exists on the planet? And the implication in the story, the landowner said, no, we'll just let the, the weeds and the wheat grow together, and then when the harvest comes, we'll separate the weeds from the wheat. What's the parallel? No, we'll wait until judgment day, and at judgment day, which is coming, we'll separate the righteous from the unrighteous, and the righteous will go to eternal life, and the unrighteous will be damned to hell forever. We have to wait until then, because if we go through the world now, who of us survives the plucking out? Half of me goes? How do you disembowel the evil that has so filtered into humanity and throughout creation? That's why I suggest to you, God can't fix this world, but what he did promise us is that he would be with us and that he would go through this world with us. The Lord is my shepherd. He guides me in paths of righteousness. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. Not because you're taking all the evil and all the pain and all the suffering away from me and out of my path, but that you'll be with me on that path. And what God can do, he can't fix that, but he can do and he does have a remedy. God is doing a divine do-over. It's called a new heaven and a new earth. And we put our trust in Christ and we accept the salvation that he brings and God now is with us on this path through good and bad until someday we're in that new heaven, new earth with him. Listen to what he is doing. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. God, God has promised a divine do-over, but our problem is we get impatient. I want no more pain now. I want no crying now. I want everything fixed, everything handled, everything over, everything by, I want it now. But we confuse shall with is. The painlessness is not now. No crying, that is not now. That's shall. And someday there shall be no more pain. There shall be no crying. There shall be no death. There shall be no evil. There shall be no injustice. There shall be no abuse. There shall be none of that suffering because it's a new heaven and a new earth and the curse that we've lived with from the time Adam and Eve and you and I have said yes to sin, that curse will be gone for eternity. So until then, what do we do? How do we handle Friday afternoon? What do we tell ourselves? When I think about the new heaven and new earth and Jesus promises disciples at the Last Supper, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You ever daydream and wonder what that place is going to be like? The Bible tells us you can't imagine it. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered the mind of man what God has in store. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul reminds us, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
have to tell you how that takes me back. Yesterday, before service, I walked by Pastor Shane's office. He goes, Pastor, you good? This is classic question when I'm going out to preach. I said, no. Back prayer room, you all right? No. Like I told Dirk, I've never been more not all right before I preached in my life. The pain that I witnessed up close and personal of a guy who watched grow up here and was on our staff, raising his kids here. He and his wife involved in this body. The pain I watched in their parents, losing a daughter-in-law and a granddaughter, her parents losing a daughter and a daughter and a granddaughter. There are no words. And I say to myself, God, what must you be preparing if that kind of agony doesn't compare? I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Cling to that hope. And every time life deals me a body blow, I have to remind myself, but the sufferings of this present time, I haven't seen it yet, but they don't compare. He told me that. So what are we to do? Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 says, and this is talking to Christians, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Why a section breakfast? Because if 200 people can go to that and it starts things in motion that, man, months and years from now, you've got some really good friends. That's how you bear each other's burdens. It's half the time, people don't even know our burden if they don't know us. I got to the neighborhood and I pulled in the street and had to park by the police barricade and so I walked a neighbor graciously opened their yard and their garage and their home to us and so I walked a few houses around the bend and I got there right at the same time that Brett and I believe Olivia and the Andersons and, and the Brockmans were all getting there as you would imagine, the afternoon into the early evening, just sitting across the lawn in the garage in the house was small talk, silence, and crying. Quiet weeping. For a little while, I was in the closed patio with Brett, and we just sat there, and we were either quiet or crying. And I found myself, this little voice saying, say something. This guy's in agony. Say something to help make it better. You're his pastor. I got nothing. I certainly can't say I know how you feel. Lost a beautiful wife inside and out, awesome daughter, their lives are forever changed. And Romans 12, 15 came to mind, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And sometimes all you can do is cry together. Or just be quiet in the suffering. We remind ourselves that this suffering doesn't compare. I don't know what it's going to be, but it doesn't compare. We remind ourselves there's coming a day that all these tears, he's going to wipe them away. There's going to be a reunion. 
And I imagine Sarah and Kayla saying to Brett and Olivia, let us show you around. And so we turn to God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we'll be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, and the Bible doesn't pull any punches, it doesn't say love Jesus and there's no suffering, there's no heartache, you get a pass. No, there are in abundance. Even Jesus, one of the last things he instructed his disciples was in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. How that must have rung through their mind when hours later they saw Jesus hanging on a cross and thinking, this is how you overcome the world? Little did they know, yes, it is because they buried him in a grave that wouldn't hold him and he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven. He said, take heart, I've overcome the world. And if I've overcome the world, the implication is we will too. Just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Let me add there, you've got to allow that comfort and its abundance. At the end of that book, I wrote 13 suggestions. Let me just give you a couple of them. And last night, Dirk and I were talking to Brett, and he kind of quoted this back to me in conversation. Sooner or later, please learn in the pain of this life I would suggest you don't ask why. Ask now what? The most disappointing question I've ever asked God is why. Not that he doesn't occasionally answer it, but often the silence feels kind of like, I'm God, you're not. And you might not be able to handle the answer anyway. It might just be a fallen planet. It might be any one of a number of reasons, but I have found asking God instead, now what? There's almost always a clear answer. It might not be now what for the next year or the next month. It might be now what for the next day, for the next afternoon, for the next hour. But I found in the face of tremendous heartache and pain and injustice, God, now what? What right now? Second, don't blame God. You understand the universe-wide battle that's going on? He's trying to save this even now. He's trying to put together a do-over, and he will. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth, but the battle continues to rage, and you and I are collateral damage. Don't blame God. And all the comfort we talked about him bestowing, you can't receive anything with a clenched fist. We come to him like this. Father, I'm devastated. Comfort me. Draw near to God in your pain. We have a choice. And finally, don't go it alone. I've often said there is a theologically incorrect statement if anyone says, well, me and God is enough. No. Scripture does not teach that. There are lots of things God does this way in me and in you, but there are some things he will not do this way. He will do it this way through someone else. And when we go through some of the worst of times, it's when a row full of friends who've grown up together, had kids together, gone through life together, gone through heartaches together. You guys have lived the pain I've talked about already. And life doesn't turn out the way it planned even before Friday, but it's friends saying, hey, we'll save you seats. 
We can't fix it. We can't make it better, but we can remind you. We can remind you that it doesn't end here. The story's not over. It's a tragic chapter. It's a tragic path, but it doesn't end here. And there is a God of all comfort who will see us through. And someday, we will be in that do-over that he is making. Can you believe that? Of a new heaven and a new earth. And all this will be gone. And so as we journey through this life and this planet, we accumulate so much in the way of pain, heartache, questions, and struggles. And I asked Zach, and he had less than 24 hours to find and arrange and play this song. But it is an invitation at times when our hearts are heavy and overwhelmed to lay your burden down. The Bible tells us to cast all our anxiety on him because he cares for us. So during this song, at the very least, pray for Brett and Olivia. Pray for Sarah's family, the Brockmans, and Brett's family, the Andersons. Pray for the Knox family, that God comforts them and gives them strength, lets them know of his love. And if there are burdens you came in here with in your own life today, prayerfully lay it down before him. And after the song, we'll pray.
as we pray. Afterwards, I asked Brett just to play that old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. You're welcome just to stay, and you can sing, hum along, or just listen, be in prayer. He's going to play after that if you want to just linger for a while. And uh, Grief Share happens to be starting up in mid-September. After we're done, they'll toss it on the screen, or you can go by the VIP room if you want to register for that. There'll also be prayer team members down front here to pray with you for any need you might have. Or if you're here and you need that hope of Christ and you want to pray to accept him today, we'll be happy to pray with you in that regard. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you are the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Lord, we're thankful that when we say yes to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that you are our good shepherd. You lead us in green pastures and still waters and places of beauty. And you're also with us even in the valley of shadow of death and we have no fear because you comfort us. Lord, we pray for Brett and Olivia, for Sarah's parents, the Brockmans, for Brett's parents, the Andersons, their extended families, for the Knox family. We pray for the Vandalia Butler community and the school and the the students at the high school especially. Lord, as our hearts have been ravaged by such senseless pain, we pray that we'll know your comfort, we'll know your kindness and your love and your peace. And Lord, help us as a church to be salt and light to a world in desperate need, to people who are out there, so to speak, that do not have Christ within them, the hope of glory. And let us be instruments of your peace and your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.